Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, oh, somebody said good evening. Thank you very much. That's very nice. Uh, <laughs> people don't usually do that. Uh, first, let me introduce myself. I'm chairing it this evening. I'm Professor Michael Cox uh, from the Department of International Relations and Ideas, uh, Diplomacy and Strategy at LSE. Uh, welcome to this Ralph Miliband lecture in the program for 2007-2008, uh, looking in the broad uh, terms of oil, uh, energy security, and uh, global order. One could say there's no better time uh, to be discussing this. Indeed, according uh, to at least three of the great narratives of our time, global warming, uh, the inexorable rise in the price of oil, and the emergence of what some people are calling an axis of new oil powers, stretching from Russia to Venezuela, we have no alternative but to discuss it. And we're delighted to have somebody here tonight at the LSE who has thought and written about the issue of energy and security and world order certainly longer and definitely more critically than possibly anybody else I know, Professor Michael Clare. Professor Clare has a long and uh, distinguished career, firstly as an academic, uh, he is Five Colleges Professor of Peace and World Security Studies, uh, whose department is located in Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. Secondly, as a public intellectual, he is Defense Correspondent of the Radical American magazine Nation, established in the late 19th century. Uh, thirdly, as a prolific writer and author, he is in fact author and editor of a dozen books at least. The first, dare I mention the date, Michael, 1971, if I think I got it right, War Without End, American Planning for the Next Vietnams, and the last book I think came out in 2004-2005, Blood and Oil, The Danger and Consequences of America's Growing Dependency on Imported Petroleum. And fourthly, of course, uh, Michael has a long and distinguished career as a dissenting voice in an environment where sometimes saying nothing is often better for your career than saying the sorts of interesting and difficult things <laughs> that Michael Clare has been saying for, for many, many years. Uh, we welcome him to the LSE tonight to speak in the lecture, Oil, War, Geopolitics, the Struggle Over What Remains. Michael, you're more than welcome to the LSE into this lecture series. Thank you very much. Uh, well, thank you for that warm welcome, um, and uh, thanks everybody for coming today, this evening. I'm very delighted to be here to see new friends and some old friends. I'm very honored to have been invited to participate in the Ralph Miliband program. Uh, Ralph Miliband was a towering figure in critical social thought in this country and in the United States, and it's a real privilege to be standing here at the London School of Economics and to participate in this program. I didn't have the fortune to study with him, but I, I did study with somebody that he admired very much, C. Wright Mills, and C. Wright Mills had a big influence on me. So I guess in some ways there's, there's a, a bond and a connection. And so I'm happy to somehow all these years later to, to be able to speak here. Uh, for my presentation tonight, 
I'm going to speak about the potential for a conflict or Cold War-like rivalry among the great powers, especially the United States and China, over dwindling supplies of critical raw materials, especially oil. In my mind, this is the greatest threat of instability and conflict in the 21st century involving the major powers. Now, there are other threats to international security in the 21st century involving great powers and lesser powers and non-state actors like terrorists that are probably more likely to occur, that might occur more frequently. But in terms of the potential consequences, even though it may be less probable, in terms of the consequences a conflict or a new Cold War involving the major powers over resources, in my mind, is the greatest danger that we face and therefore worth our close attention tonight. Now, before I get into the heart of my argument, let me say that the problem of conflict among powers, especially new powers, has always been a major issue in international affairs. The rise of new powers has always been a source of anxiety for the existing so-called status quo powers and has often been a source of instability. I think you're all well aware of this. The dominant powers in the international system, the so-called status quo powers, have always been fearful of the demands raised by newer powers who want a seat at the table of international affairs and, and who face the prospect of giving up some of their privileges that they enjoy as the dominant powers. The rising powers, on the other hand, are often impatient with the reluctance of the status quo powers to make room for them at the table. And this, as you know, has often led to catastrophic conflict two great world wars in the 20th century are to some degree a product of this phenomenon. The question thus arises, what can we expect in the case of China's rise to great power status? There are many American political scientists who believe that in this case, no less than the case of the rise of Germany and Japan, that conflict is inevitable, that this is just an iron law of international relations. Others, for, for others, for example, John Eikenberry, writing in the current issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, argue that China's rise can be accommodated peacefully, assuming that the major Western powers, the current status quo powers, make room for China at the table and allow China to benefit from the international institutions created after World War II to benefit the dominant powers of the time. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of discussion taking place in the United States and I'm sure no doubt in this country as well and in Europe over uh, this question and I'm sure we'll see more of that in the future because the rise of China is probably the most important single political and economic fact of our time. 
But to my ears, some of this discussion has a sterile, airless academic quality because it neglects the all-important resource dimension, which in my mind changes everything. It is true, of course, that Germany and Japan rose to prominence at a time when the great powers were competing with one another for access to the raw materials of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and that to some degree the antagonisms that led to World War I in particular were stimulated by that competition. And this was a factor that led to the World Wars of the 20th century. But they did not face a world in which the demand for essential resources was growing at an exponential rate and in which the supply of many of the most important resources was facing imminent contraction. And that is the situation that we face in the coming years. And in my mind, this poses a very different situation than was faced in the past and changes everything. So the first thing I want to do is to review the demand and supply situation with respect to energy and especially regarding the situation of the United States and China. And the first part of this is the explosive growth in the demand of energy. Now this is a, a, a complicated topic. I don't intend to go into enormous detail in this. Uh, and I'm happy to discuss it in more detail if you would like uh, after I finish, but I think it's necessary to, to at least go over the rough outlines of the situation. Right now, the world is facing the most rapid and the largest buildup in demand for energy in modern world history. Perhaps right after World War II, uh, the pace of demand might have been higher, but the, the base upon which that demand uh, was, was built obviously was much smaller. But today, the pace of demand is absolutely extraordinary. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, world energy consumption is expected to rise by 57% between now and 2030, an extraordinary and perhaps unprecedented degree of expansion over such a short period of time. This will require increases in the output of every form of energy, traditional fuels, fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas, nuclear power, hydropower, as well as non-traditional fuels, emerging fuels, biofuels, and renewables. It will probably entail the greatest economic and industrial challenge facing policymakers uh, of all in the years to come and will certainly be the most expensive undertaking facing the, pl the planet in the coming decades. Probably the greatest part of this challenge will come in the area of petroleum. Oil now provides the single largest share of world energy, about 38%, nearly two-fifths. And the overwhelming majority of world transportation energy, about 
Virtually every moving system on the planet is powered by petroleum. And despite all of the talk of petroleum alternatives, there is no substitute for petroleum, especially in the transportation area, on the horizon that can be expected to assume its critical role for the foreseeable future. Lots of talk, lots of investment underway, but there are no projections to show that any alternative fuel will replace petroleum for the next two or three decades and possibly beyond. We are stuck in our addiction to oil for the largest share of our energy for the foreseeable future. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, world, the world demand for oil will rise from approximately 84 million barrels of oil per day today. That's how oil consumption is measured, million barrels per day. So it's now about 84 million barrels a day to an estimated 118 million barrels a day in 2030. This is a number I'd like you to remember, 118 million barrels per day, estimated world demand in 2030, I'm, because I'm going to come back to it in a little while. At the same time that we're seeing this explosive increase in demand for energy, especially oil, we're seeing a dramatic shift in the allocation among consumers in the demand for energy. And this is something that is even more significant, I think. Until very recently, the majority of demand for energy and oil was in the global north, the industrialized, the mature industrialized countries of North America, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and the former Soviet Union. As recently as 1990, in my mind not very long, far long ago, these countries together accounted for three-fourths of total world energy demand, while the global south, with an overwhelming majority of the world's population, accounted for only one-fourth of world energy consumption. But that pattern is changing very rapidly because of rapidly rising demand in China, India, and the other newly industrialized countries of the developing world. At, at present, energy demand in the global south has risen to about 35% of world energy and 35% of world petroleum use. But this is just an early indication of the south's impact on global energy use. Demand is rising so rapidly in the developing world that the global north, I'm sorry, energy demand is rising so rapidly in the global south that by 2025, the global south will overtake the north to be the leading consumer of energy. And by 2030, according to the latest Department of Energy projections, China alone will consume more energy than all of Europe plus Japan combined, just China. A remarkable turnaround since 1990 when Chinese consumption was less than half of Europe's. 
So not only is demand increasing radically, but within the increased level of Japan, a huge shift from the global north to the global south in terms of consumption. So far, we've looked at the changing distribution of demand, but what about the supply side of the equation? This is where things start to get very dicey. The very significant challenge posed by rising energy demand, demand from China, India, and other rising powers would be addressed without great anxiety, I'd argue, if we had high confidence that the world energy industry could satisfy the ever-increasing needs of both the older consuming nations of the world and newer consumers in the global south. But we can have no such confidence. There is a growing body of data and analysis to suggest that the global supply of energy will not be sufficient to satisfy anticipated demand of all consumers in the decades ahead, producing fierce and possibly violent conflict over whatever supplies are available. Now, I know you probably are aware there's a great deal of controversy over this matter, uh, particularly with respect to oil, but it's also true of natural gas, of uranium for nuclear power, of coal and hydropower. In fact, all sources of energy are a, a matter of controversy in question. I obviously can't do justice to this debate in the time allotted to me. I'm happy to go into this as much detail as you'd like in a question period. I will talk about oil because I think that's the one that's most important um, and, and, and most critical. And even there, I can only give you the highlights of the debate. But let me talk about oil. First, with respect to oil, the rate of discovery of new oil fields has been falling for every decade since the 1970s which is the last decade in which new discoveries exceeded the amount of extraction from existing fields. And at present, we are now consuming twice the amount of oil from existing fields that we're replacing with new oil from newly discovered fields. This is obviously a non-sustainable situation. This is not due to laxity on the part of the major oil companies. In fact, they're spending more money each year than the year before in the search for new oil fields. But they're simply not finding new oil. Only a handful of major fields, really large fields, have been discovered in the past 40 years. The Kashagan field in the Kazakh part of the Caspian Sea, a few fields off the coast of Africa, recently a new field off the coast of Brazil, one or two others. None of these fields is as large as the giant fields in Saudi Arabia and some big fields in Mexico and Venezuela that were discovered in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And in fact, those giant fields discovered 40, 50, 60 years ago still provide a very large share of the world's current petroleum supply. 
So the fact that we're not finding any more giant fields like them, or even many medium-sized fields, is a very worrying sign indeed. Second factor, the rate of decline in output of many of the existing fields we rely on today appears to be accelerating year after year as these fields approach the end of their natural life cycle, which is true of all oil fields. Oil fields have a natural life cycle. They're discovered, they're, they're pumped, the oil is pumped and they reach the end of their life cycle. And many of the giant fields, as I say, were discovered 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago and are now approaching the end of their natural life cycle and their output is beginning to sink. This is not something you read about in the major press. But if you read the technical literature, you can detect growing worrying signs about this. Giant fields like Awar in Saudi Arabia and Cantarell in Mexico have gone into sharp decline or are being kept at their current levels through extreme unsustainable rescue efforts. This would be a matter of secondary concern if the rate of decline in these giant fields were matched by discoveries of equally large fields to replace them, but as I said, that's not happening. So the world still contains a lot of oil, but we're using up what we have and not replacing it. It's a little bit like so many British mysteries I read, I love British mysteries, are, 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 are about people inheriting large inheritances and then squandering them in wasteful extravagance. That's the situation today uh, with respect to the world's inheritance of petroleum. We're going through them at an extravagant rate and we're not replacing them with new wealth. And you can do that for a while, but eventually you'll be left with nothing. We could re ameliorate this problem a little bit to some degree if the major oil companies would develop known fields, fields which are known to exist but are located in politically challenging parts of the world, for example, in Iraq, Iran, Russia, Kazakhstan, Nigeria, Sudan, and a few other countries. These, these, as I say, are fields that are known to exist uh, but haven't been developed because of war, corruption, violence, and state thievery. And some efforts have been made to develop these fields. Uh, and with an investment estimated in the tens of trillions of pounds or dollars, we could increase somewhat the level of output in the future. But the large oil companies and their investors and the banks wisely are choosing more and more frequently not to take risks, especially, for example, in Russia or Kazakhstan, where they're being held up, they're being robbed at gunpoint almost by state, by, uh, state companies or governments and their, their investments are being taken from them through corruption or otherwise, or their employees are being 
kidnapped or killed, as is occurring in Nigeria, or there are wars on, for whatever reason, they're not making these investments. And as a result of the lack of investment, these fields, too, are not being developed. So we can't count on that either. Combine all these factors together, and the picture regarding future oil availability is very dismal. Just how dismal? Well, let's go back to that figure I ask you to remember of 118 million barrels a day for anticipated world demand in 2030. In its most recent assessment of the world oil equation, titled the Medium-Term Oil Market Report for 2008 to 2012, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, concluded that world oil output will rise to about 96 million barrels a day by 2012, but will not be able to rise much beyond that in the years beyond 2012. A very similar assessment was given by the CEO of Total, the leading French company, Christophe de Marjorie, who was at a London conference in October, when he said that 100 million barrels per day is now, in my view, an optimistic view for maximum world output. So 100 million barrels per day is the optimistic view, whereas the Department of Energy says that anticipated world demand in 2030 is 118 million barrels a day, and the International Energy Agency said that it's going to be hard to get much above 96 million barrels a day, so we have a shortfall there of 20 million barrels a day, somewhere in there. Both of these analyses and others published in industry circles say that it might be able to sustain output at or near 100 million barrels a day, maybe a little bit over that, for a few years past 2015, but eventually, long before 2030, the level will begin to decline. Now, I know that the disappearance of conventional oil, conventional liquid petroleum, will be compensated to some degree by an increase in non-conventional petroleum supplies. Canadian tar sands you've heard about, Venezuelan extra heavy oil, a certain amount of liquids from, from corn, ethanol, and other alternatives. These are going to add maybe 5 million barrels a day, maybe a little bit more than that by 2030 if we're lucky. Nowhere near the level of demand projected by the Department of Energy. The likelihood is that the world is going to face a substantially less petroleum than is demand is expected beginning five to ten years from now, and the supply will increasingly contract after that until some point in the distant future when alternatives will become available on a very large scale, which is to say not in my lifetime, or the lifetime of others in this room who are, who are uh, in the professorial class. Maybe some of you who are students will live to see that day. That is when, when second-generation ethanol or other forms that are being tested in laboratories today are available are on a large scale, but not in the next two or three decades. So we're facing a 
huge crisis of liquid energy supply beginning in about five years to ten years from now and lasting for another quarter of a century at least. We will face a very significant energy crisis which will have huge economic impact. Anything to do with transportation will be affected because there won't be any alternatives available and that means virtually all forms of commerce will be affected as well. And it's in this context, I think, that we have to look at the issue now of rising powers and how the United States and the other mature industrial powers will respond to China's efforts to capture more and more of the world's oil supply when the availability of global reserves is about to peak and go into decline. How do you think they're going to respond to this? My prognosis is badly, really badly. Now, why do I say this? First of all, a vast supply of affordable oil is absolutely essential to the successful functioning of the American economy and American society. Many of you, I suspect, have been to the United States, maybe the overwhelming majority. I hope those of you who have been to the United States have been beyond New York City, Washington, and Boston. Those are virtually the only cities in the United States with a workable public transportation system. The rest of the country has none of that or, bare, or the bare minimum and relies almost entirely on petroleum-fueled transportation systems to get by. The, the entire transportation infrastructure of the United States runs on petroleum, and the situation is getting worse, not better, because virtually all of the housing in the United States is beyond the reach of public transpo rail transportation. Entire industries in the U.S., automobiles, airlines, tourism, agriculture, the world's agriculture system is chemically dependent on petroleum, but especially in the United States is dependent on petroleum. Something that you may not think about, American military power is totally dependent on petroleum. We talk, the, the, that is American leaders, talk about the prowess of our precision-guided missiles, you know, and, and the effectiveness of stealth technology, this, that this is our advantage. But the fact is that America's global military power is totally dependent on a vast supply of petroleum, and the dependency is growing exponentially. The average American GI in soldier in Iraq consumes 16 gallons of oil per day. That's four times as much as the average soldier in the first Persian Gulf War in 1991 because the new weapons that have been introduced for this war are much more fuel intensive with the high-tech revolution introduced by Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld are much more fuel guzzling than the weapons used in the last Gulf War. And the new weapons on the drawing board for the next conflicts are that much more fuel intensive than the current ones. So to, for, to deploy a global military 
capacity to fight war simultaneously in Afghanistan and Iraq to have forces in Korea and Bosnia makes the U.S. military the world's largest consumer of petroleum. It uses more petroleum every day than the entire country of Sweden, to put this in perspective. So oil is essential to the United States. It is the essence of the American way of life, of American civilization. For this reason, American politicians would come under immense pressure to use whatever means are necessary, including military force, to ensure an adequate supply of oil if the country faced actual deep shortfall and possible economic collapse as a result of any shortages. doesn't matter whether there would be a Democrat or a Republican in power at the time. Either would be forced to act dramatically and, if necessarily, militarily to ensure that the United States had enough oil. Bear in mind the defining stated policy of the United States with respect to access to foreign oil is the so-called Carter Doctrine of 1980, which was enunciated by the most liberal and peace-minded of all post-war American presidents, Jimmy Carter, in 1980, adopted in response to the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which was seen in Washington as posing a threat to the flow of Persian Gulf oil. This is a doctrine which remains more relevant today than it did in 1980. And by the way, it, perhaps we could come to a discussion of this, uh, could provoke a new conflict with Iran starting tomorrow, but any time in the future. The essence of the Carter Doctrine says that any attempt by a hostile power to threaten the flow of oil from the Persian Gulf will be resisted by any means necessary, including military force. And this is Jimmy Carter, the most, as I say, uh, peace-minded of American presidents. So you could be sure that any future threat will be faced in the same manner. And then finally, and why, why I, I expect uh, the U.S. will respond badly, the fact of the matter is China has already been targeted by the United States as a potential threat to vital American energy supplies. I can't emphasize this enough to you. U.S. policymakers view China as, the, as, as, a, as a potential threat to America's access to the oil that we will need in the future. And they're already taking steps to combat what they see, what American policymakers see as China's energy-seeking efforts. That is, China's pursuit of foreign energy supplies in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Central Asia is viewed through a national security, in quotation marks, a national security lens. And anything viewed through the lens of national security has a potential military component to it. This is evident in reports of the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S.-China Security and Economic Commission, which is a body, uh, drawn, a body established by Congress to, to study U.S.-China relations, and specific acts of Congress. 
I don't have the time tonight to cite all of these documents, though I, I could if you ask me to later. Uh, but, for example, I refer you to the annual report of the U.S. Department of Defense mandated by Congress called The Military Power of the People's Republic of China, which you can obtain online, which each year has been talking with greater concern about China's dependence on foreign sources of energy, how that's increasingly driving the buildup of Chinese military forces, and how increasingly this is posing a future potential threat to U.S. security. Likewise, let me call your attention to the Unical Affair of 2005, when the China National Offshore Oil Corporation, known as CNUC, made a bid to buy the United Oil Corporation of California, known as Unical, for $18.5 billion, the largest bid ever made by a Chinese company for an American company. This was $2 billion more than the highest bid made by a U.S. company, uh, which, which was made by Chevron. This bid, uh, which under capitalist free market terms, which supposedly the Bush administration holds up as its highest principle, was defeated in the U.S. Congress on national security grounds with no intercession on the part of the White House for all its talk of free trade. Prior to congressional, the final congressional act to block the purchase of Unical by Sinuk, an overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans in the House of Representatives passed House Resolution 334, which called on President Bush to conduct a thorough review of the national security implications of the proposed purchase on the grounds that oil reserves, wherever they found, wherever they are found in the world, the majority of Unical's reserves were not in the United States but in Asia. In fact, if you're interested, majority, many of their reserves were in the Andaman Sea off of Burma, um, and uh, they, were, they were later, Chevron now owns those reserves, and they, they go in a pipeline right through Burma, and, and this is one of the largest foreign investments in Burma, keeping the law and order government in power. Uh, where was I? Uh, so the, the resolution states that oil and gas reserves, wherever they found, are, quote, strategic assets, unquote, and that the global demand for energy was, quote, at the highest level in history, unquote, and that the acquisition of Unical by China would jeopardize, quote, the national security of the United States of America, close quote. This is the way policymakers in Washington view this issue, not as an economic issue, but as a national security and a strategic matter. Now, this, is, this was in 2005 when the global supply of petroleum was more or less adequate, and China's demand for petroleum was approximately a third of where it's expected to be in 2003. So you can imagine the hysteria and alarmism we could expect when China's demand is three times greater and the supply is in crisis conditions. How then is the United States acting on this perceived 
national security peril. The most significant response for now is in the area of competitive arms diplomacy, the use of arms transfers, military assistance, intelligence sharing, military training and the like to gain geopolitical advantage in areas of interest to the United States and China competitively, notably in Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia. In the past few years, both the United States and China have substantially increased their delivery of all forms of military aid and arms and a competitive struggle to win the loyalty of key oil-producing countries in those areas. In many respects, this feels very much to me like the competitive arms diplomacy of the Cold War era when the United States and the Soviet Union competed for influence using arms in the very same areas, except now that you know it's the U.S. and China, obviously, and the objective is not so much political influence as it is access to valuable oil and gas reserves, but also uh, for China but, and, and for the West, too, uranium for nuclear power and vital minerals. In Africa, for example, which is the fastest growing source of new oil for both the United States and China, the United States has stepped up its arms deliveries, a lot of it for internal security purposes, to Nigeria, Angola, Kenya, and a number of other countries, while China has stepped up its arms deliveries to Sudan, a lot of it reportedly being used in Darfur and in southern Sudan to crush rebel forces there, also to Algeria, Angola, Nigeria, and Zimbabwe. And they seem to have a competitive cause and effect. We'll give you some, uh, or rather the recipients say, we, we've been offered something from China, can you match that? Or we're being offered from the United States, can you match that? Just as you had during the Cold War era and the competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. In fact, U.S. military involvement in Africa has reached such a high level that the U.S. government has established a new military establishment there, the U.S. Africa Command, or AFRICOM, to oversee all of its burgeoning activities in the continent. Now, when you consider that the last time the U.S. established an overseas command like this, which was in 1980 when President Carter established the Central Command in accordance with the Carter Doctrine, which I told you about. And when you consider that the Central Command, or CENTCOM, has since been engaged in four wars in the Middle East and many minor engagements, the establishment of AFRICOM in the past few months should be cause for deep concern. It certainly is something that troubles me very deeply. Turning to Central Asia and the Caspian Sea area, which is also viewed by both China and the United States as a major source of new oil and as an alternative to the troubled Persian Gulf area, you see a very similar situation of competitive arms diplomacy 
with China supplying arms, technical assistance, and training to, uh, to, to the Central Asian republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, and the United States providing similar equipment and supplies to Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and the Republic of Georgia. And here, too, you see a cause and effect kind of relationship uh, with both trying to outmatch the other. In this case, however, U.S. efforts are aimed not only at China, but at Russia as well. Now, Russia is not like the United States or China. Russia is not in the need, is, is not interested in this area for acquiring oil or gas for its own use. Rather, Russia seeks to control the flow of energy for its own strategic advantage, largely to, to dominate the transportation of energy in Eurasia and to use that as a tool of influence in surrounding areas, including Europe. This is a topic that I'd love to discuss in greater detail with you if we have the time. I'm not going to devote time to it now, uh, but it is also a source of concern to the United States. So in the Caspian Sea area, we have a three-way arms contest. But Russia and China cooperate together in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, in providing arms to these countries that I mentioned. So in terms of the U.S.-China competition, it's often the U.S. versus the SCO. Looking further into the future, the U.S. military is preparing for the day when the Iraq war, when the Iraq war is no longer the major focus of American military action, and when the global struggle over energy becomes the central focus of global security affairs. In this hypothetical future, the Navy, rather than the Army or the Marine Corps, is expected to play the leading role. As the major powers struggle for control over access to foreign resource zones and the protection of key sea lines of communication, SLOCs or SLOCs, like the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea, become the focus of concern. Sounds an awful lot like the 19th century to me, doesn't it? But anachronistic or not, the U.S. Navy is now engaged in a major, major expansion, largely justified in the documents supplied to Congress on the projected expansion of the Chinese Navy, which they claim in their documents is largely driven by China's growing dependence on imported energy from the areas that I've described. So all of, all of this is, is projected into the future that, that what, what will drive, that what's driving China's expansion is this future struggle. Therefore, we have to prepare now in anticipation of this. In this regard, no one in a position of authority will say on record that war over oil between the United States and China is inevitable. What they say that such warfare is possible 
and becoming more so all the time, and that therefore we have to begin now to prepare for this. Therefore, creating a self-fulfilling prophecy that I fear will prove to be the defining paradigm, the defining military paradigm of the 21st century. What worries me about all of this is not that China and the United States will ever choose to go to war with one another over overseas sources of energy. I see a very slight risk of a deliberate war over oil. Rather, I fear a situation of inadvertent or unintended escalation, a situation in which the two sides have become so suspicious and fearful of each other's motives and intentions that they misperceive or misunderstand their rival's behavior in a crisis and miscalculate, leading to an uncontrolled chain of events ending in full-scale hostilities. Think Sarajevo in 1914. And there are ample cases where such a thing could occur today. For example, Chinese and Japanese warships have nearly collided in the East China Sea over disputed undersea sources of natural gas over in a disputed area that both of them claim. And an attack by China on Japan would require immediate U.S. military involvement under our defense treaty with Japan. Even without the outbreak of hostilities, a new Cold War between the United States and China over access to energy supplies would prove catastrophic for the planet because it would consume trillions of dollars in military expenditures, precisely the amounts of funds that are needed to develop new energy options to avert the worst effects of global warming. If we continue to spend in my country the amounts that are being devoted, being planned and devoted for this naval buildup and other plans to fight these future wars over energy, there will be no money left in the Treasury to spend the like amounts for the energy options that are necessary to eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels. And so the race towards a hotter planet will continue without surcease. And the same is true in China. And the two of us, the U.S. and China, in 2030 will account for nearly half of all carbon dioxide emissions. In concluding, then, I return to what I said at the outset. I indicated that a outright conflict or a new Cold War between China and the U.S. may not be the most likely threat to world security in terms of probability, but it is the most serious threat when the degree of likelihood and the degree of consequence are combined. This being the case, I argue that averting an energy war, hot or cold, between the United States and China is the most pressing long-term task facing the international community today, both in terms of reducing the risk to international peace and security that stems from this, and also increasing the prospect of addressing the risk of catastrophic climate change. 
And I have to say that unfortunately I don't see that any of the leading presidential candidates of either party have, have recognized the magnitude of these threats. So I think that education around these issues and political action to raise the magnitude of these dangers, especially the risk of a Cold War between the U.S. and China over, over the race to secure foreign sources of energy, has to be the major political task in the years ahead and has to be viewed as a major danger even, even if other risks seem more imminent. And it's this message that I'd like to leave with you. I thank you for your patience in listening to me, and I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you very much. Mike, do you want to sit here or take your... I think it will be easier for me to see people if okay. I stand. <laughs> Okay, and, and uh, where, are my, where are the microphone people? <laughs> Sorry, they're not a species. Zara. Okay, I've got a microphone person up here. Uh, is it just one person up the top? Just one of you? Just the two? Is the other person with the mic? Over here. Where, yeah, no, no, somebody. Else. Okay, let's. And let's I see just, Mary has a question. So please. yeah, I'll bring. I always bring Mary in. I, I'm always good to Mary. But uh, let's just start with somebody at the top for a change because okay. we never do. Yeah, gentleman at the front. And um, the mic, at, where's the mic? Yeah, if, if you could just come in. I'll bring in my gentleman here, please. If you could, yeah, please. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Just one brief comment and a, and a question. The question is about Europe, which you said you might mention if someone asked about it. I mean, obviously, we're situated in Europe, and it would be interesting to hear your view of how we're pursuing our energy needs over the next couple of decades. The comment was, it's not new for the U.S., is it, to work with fairly undesirable and unstable, uh, yeah. undesirable regimes uh, in order to secure oil. Saudi Arabia seems to be the prime example, and the cooperation has continued, even though there's a lot of evidence that Saudi Arabia, or the uh, rulers of Saudi Arabia, played a large part in funding the development of al-Qaeda. But still America works with them. Thank you. Mike. Uh, use the mic, please. Yeah. I, d I didn't grasp the nature of the question, what, you were, what, what, I, what you're asking me to speak to. Speak to Europe and uh, our own energy needs and power in Europe, which is trying to secure the power. Yeah. Where, where does Europe fit this, into the whole Yeah. Uh, this, this, you, you, when you say Europe, the next question, the, the answer is Russia. And because Europe is becoming increasingly dependent on the natural gas flowing from Russia, and, and this obviously raises geopolitical questions of its own because Russia has a pol political agenda that goes with that, which is that we want, you know, as I say, we want a seat at the table of decision-making, which has been denied Russia for the past 10 or so years, and Russia is demanding a seat at the table, and I'm not quite sure what its list of demands is going to be, but they're going to be, you know, make, they're going to be pushing those demands with increasing authority in the years ahead, and, and Europe will have to decide which ones to say yes to and which ones to say no to, but there will be a price to be paid. Um, I, I think Europe is also will, will be drawn into the struggle in Africa 
with as well as the United States and China because that's the only other alternative. And and I I gather from the meeting in Lisbon that um, that that European leaders are are shocked to the degree to which China is beginning to preempt Europe, well, not preempt, but has moved so aggressively to gain to to tie up. Uh, oil, gas, and mineral reserves, so that uh, the, the, the competitive pressures are growing rapidly. Okay, thanks so much, Mike. Uh, there's a question here, gentleman in red. Yeah. Um, the president ethic is profit, but the Arabic ethic is honor. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Um, the president ethic is honor. I'm sorry, it's honor. The president ethic is profit. The Arabic um, ethic is honor. And as America has seemed to dishonor the Arabic world with Israel, can you comment on the American future policy on Israel and the Middle East in relation to this? Um, and obviously China is seen as a least threat to them. So obviously they may side with China. Okay. And can you comment on the last OPEC big meeting that went on and that's regarding five, what came five, out? That's five questions. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just take one? Take the first one, Mike, because there's lots of other hands going up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the point you made about China's China's making a huge effort to supplant the United States in the Arab world. A uh, huge effort. Uh, the problem is that the Saudi royal family, which uh, this gentleman raised the first question, mentioned, is so dependent on American military protection that it can abandon the United States for the time being. But, uh, and the Chinese are not ready to replace the United States as their guardians at the palace gate, not for the time being. But the Chinese are certainly making an effort to supplant the United States in the Middle East. And uh, the, the way this has been shown, for example, is in arms sales to Iran, which is seen as very provocative by the United States and could lead to some future crisis. But the Chinese, the Chinese view the Persian Gulf as they call it an American lake. They're very aware that they're outgunned, that this is the center of American power. So they're concentrating their efforts in Africa and in Central Asia where they see a comparative advantage. That's why I emphasize that in my comments, because that's where the rivalry now is, at, is, is hottest. The, the Chinese are playing it cool, cooler, more cautious in the Gulf, because they know that America will be much more reactive and violent if they mess around too much. Okay. I'll, I'll take Mary and then a gentleman in the middle. Yeah, Mary? Yeah. Um, my, supposing we accept the, your premise that there's going to be a dramatic shortage of oil, which I'm not completely convinced of, and we could talk about that. But let's just, for the sake of argument, assume that we accept your premise. Mm -hmm. My question is, why is the response to that a geopolitical conflict rather than, say, cooperation? Um, just to go on a little bit on this line, and I think it reflects what the gentleman upstairs was mentioning about Saudi Arabia. If if we take the case of Iraq, this was an extremely irrational war if the aim was to increase the supply of oil because actually the level of, 
the oil production hasn't yet reached its pre-war levels. So if the method is geopolitical competition, it's actually rather an inefficient method. And I'd say that was true of the Caucasus and the, Caspia, uh, and the Central Asia because it's more likely to provoke conflict and instability, which is bad for oil production, than it is to secure. Surely the simplest thing the U.S. could have done would have been to make a deal with Saddam Hussein. That would have been the way to secure its oil supplies. Um, so my question is really, what, and I think in what you were saying about the anachronism of the language, isn't this a very anachronistic method in a world of globalization, in a world where military power is no longer as effective as it used to be? So why do you think a shortage of oil will necessarily lead to this anachronistic response? Yeah. Thank, thank you. I, I, I would love to spend the rest of the evening on your question, but no, I, we you got, can't. You've got, you got, you got two minutes, 35 yeah, seconds. Yeah, all right. Uh, first, I, I, should be, I should be clear that when I talk about shortage, I'm talking about a shortfall with respect to a much higher level of demand. <clears throat> so actually the amount of oil that will be available at least for the next five or ten years will be greater than the amount available now. But the level of demand will be so much higher that we will perceive scarcity even though the supply will actually be greater. So let me clarify that. Secondly, as I just mentioned, American strategy is to preserve the Persian Gulf as an American lake. And from that, not, not, and the, the war in Iraq, in my view, was not to seize Iraqi oil, but to preserve American dominance of the Persian Gulf as a whole. So the war was not so irrational from that perspective. Saddam Hussein was viewed as a threat to the principle of unquestioned American dominance of the lake. And he was eliminated. And new bases have been acquired, which will never be given up, not by Hillary Clinton, not by Barack Obama, not by Mr. Edwards, not by any prominent Democrat or Republican has spoken of abandoning the enduring bases in Iraq which will be very effective in a case of a war with Iran. And all of them say that if Iran acquires nuclear weapons, they're prepared to go to war if necessary. So the principle of strategic dominance of the Gulf remains the, the governing policy of the United States. And from that perspective, the war in Iraq is not totally irrational. I, I think it's crazy. But, you know, from a strategic point of view, it's not completely irrational because, because the goal was not Iraq's oil but control of the lake. Uh, why not cooperation? Because I, 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 I think that, 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 that elites in a declining imperial environment, if I could use that expression, that's what I think we have here, inertia rules. The Navy and the military are trying to preserve their privilege, and you've written about this. You know, I follow your thinking. You know, this is a Baroque imperial apparatus trying to preserve its institutional power, and they need a threat large enough to justify spending on unimaginably extravagant terms. Only China fits that bill. 
not terrorism, not Iran, not any combination of rogue states and terrorisms can do it. Only China. That's my answer. Can I, uh, can I follow up just quickly? I'm yeah. going to abuse the privilege of the chair for the very first time in my life. Um, I mean, here new, new alliances are being formed between Mary Calder and Mick Cox, probably for the first time in a long time. But, I mean, if one takes the China versus USA argument, I mean, following your logic of your argument, which I mean, I see a lot of argument in which you're saying. And, uh, but why is it the policies of both China and of the United States point in almost the opposite direction to those which you're suggesting? In other words, the Chinese, rather than seeing the United States as the hegemon to be confronted, actually is engaging with the United States in what it would call constructive engagement and sees its relationship with the United States in terms of the theory of the peaceful rise of China. In other words, not repeating the 19th century, which you refer back to. And, on the, and then to take the Bush administration, which I've not been at, at all at, <laughs> happy with for eight years, ever since he got selected in 1999-2000. I mean, whatever one says against the Bush administration, one thing you could say it says on China is it's certainly since 9-11... They've been talking a lot about peaceful engagement with China. You know, China as a cooperative partner, China as, as somebody you have to work with in terms of world trade, world organization. I mean, they do see China in a sense as a problem, as a kind of long-term rise of China, but not, not necessarily in the oil terms, I suppose. So anyway, but just following up on Mary, just in a sense abusing the privilege and I now shut up, I mean, it, it, it seems your argument, a strongly realist one, points to deep conflict, it's quite true. But following on from Mary's point, the actual policies being pursued by both the Chinese Communist Party and, and, and indeed by the Bush administration look towards a, a kind of constructive engagement between the two as a kind of way of world management of international order rather than the conflict you talked about. Yeah, my answer, you know, I, I'm glad yeah. I inserted into my talk the comments about the Unical affair because I think this was a turning point because uh, this, this was this effort by Sinuk Remember, this was the largest effort ever made by China to acquire an American firm. What they were told was that oil and natural gas and energy are not part of international commerce or free trade or capitalism. It's off limits. That's as, as it was said, this is a strategic matter. Mm. And in, that, in this area, there is no engagement, no cooperation. This is a military matter. We are adversaries. And the lesson the Chinese took for this was June 2005. Here's what happened in June 2005. The Chinese President Hu Jintao met with President Putin at a summit meeting in which they adopted a protocol on world order in the 21st century in which they denounced unilateralism and established a strategic partnership which has led to military exercise, a, a military alliance for the first time since the 1960s. So it pushed China into a military alliance with Russia, which I think they would prefer not to have. It has led to... The, oh, they went from... They went from Moscow to Astana, where there was a meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which adopted a resolution calling for the expulsion of American military bases from Central Asia. This followed an uprising in Uzbekistan, 
in which the Americans and the British, the EU condemned uh, Kazimov, the, the, the dictator of Uzbekistan, and the Chinese welcomed him with you know, open arms. And he expelled the Americans from their base in Khanabad. There was It was like the beginning of a new era in which energy, I believe, was the center of this. And since then, the SCO has become an anti-American, proto-NATO-like military alliance. So there was a shift that took place. And I believe the U.S. pushed them in that direction. If, if the Unical thing had gone through, we might be in a different world. But they took the message that that there is no free trade and no, and no fair play when it comes to energy. Okay, thanks. That's it. I, I won't say The gentleman here, please. Yeah. Um, I was uh, uh, thinking of asking you a question about um, the high price uh, of oil, which has obviously been in the news in the last week, uh, and particularly whether you thought that uh, might change uh, the behavior going forward of both uh, consumers of oil uh, and those supplying it. But uh, I'm loath to drag you away from the debate you've been having just in the last few minutes because uh, my feeling was that uh, through your presentation, uh, your conception of how this uh, international system might develop focused on this energy security issues was uh, clearly one which is pessimistic uh, but also almost appeared to be touching on an element of inevitability in terms of uh, the way you saw in particular the the conflict between the U.S. and China as being likely uh, to develop. So perhaps to push you a little bit on this point, I'd be very interested to hear if you perhaps in a year's time had a hotline to President-elect Clinton, President-elect Obama, President-elect McCain. Would you be saying there are policy alternatives which the West and particularly the U.S. can pursue uh, which could change this situation? Or do you, do you feel that there is such a degree of inevitability about it because of the structure of the international system that the only advice you'd have would be start digging. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I, I am pessimistic because I think the trends are moving in this direction. Um, there is, I, 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 my, my, my advice would be, and, and here's where, you know, what Mary said is what my advice is. Cooperate, 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 um, and that and that ultimately China and the U.S. will go down in flames together if we don't cooperate. Flames doubly, you know, militarily and and literally flames in a planet that will will be uninhabitable, because as I say, the two of us, the U.S. and China together, are are going to roast the planet. Uh, so. Where the the, the the incentives for cooperation are so great, uh, I fear. I mean, I, I I could I could spend a half an hour and give you my specific. You know, here's what you should do. Uh, I don't think that's what you want. I mean, and, and and what has to be done is pretty well known, which is a rapid increase in the in the development of petroleum petroleum alternatives. And, and, and I hope I made clear that the emphasis is on liquids. I mean, we could talk about wind power and solar power. Those things are fine and good, but they're not going to solve the, the liquid transportation problem is the crisis for both of us. 
because of our dependency on, on liquid transportation fuels. So it has to move towards biofuels, non-food biofuels is, is, is where the thrust has to be. And, and the, the two potential sources of, of that are, are cellulosic ethanol, non-food non, non, non ethanol, and coal as a source of liquids if you bury the carbon. And that, that's, but to do that, you have to cut the defense budget in half. That's the only source of, that's the only source of money. So that's the essence of my suggestions. Um, but I was about to say that I think it's going to take a few crises before that message is, I mean, that's known. But the political will is going to require crisis. And, and I hate to say it, but I think we're going to get those crises, either a global warming crisis or something else. Okay. Uh, there's a gentleman up here. Yeah. Uh, quick question, please. Thanks. Um, oh, sorry. Um, how does the – well, we've, we've just heard of the, uh, uh, the decision to go, go nuclear in terms of uh, power, nuclear power stations in the UK, and presumably this will be copied throughout uh, uh, the European continent and maybe more further, further afield. How does this feed into the equation of rivalry um, for resources um, between China and the USA because uranium is present in – in countries which are, to put it mildly, very, very uh, dodgy, um, um, whether it be Chad or, or elsewhere. So I'd like you to comment on that. And also, what you said you were going, you could have said more about these American reports or corporations which came out with these, um, um, I can't remember what you said in that, the, uh, ideas about how energy, the rivalry for energy would feed into uh, uh, a future scenario of, of, of rivalry. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I mean, the, the, the short answer is, is that the n nuclear power that, that the British are going to develop will, will have a negligible effect, um, but the larger race worldwide towards nuclear power especially using uranium as a source of energy primary fuel, will stir up geopolitical conflict, as you suggested, for supplies of uranium. Now, now China is getting most of its uranium from Australia and Niger in Africa. Uh, that's a, and the French have, uh, have, have a lot of influence there. There is a insurgency in Niger uh, there's been some violence. There could be more. Um, I don't know where the British get the uranium, and I think they also have some, some um, recycling of plutonium. Uh, but the problem, as I say, for the U.S. and China is not electricity but liquids. So, so the, the impact there is, in terms of the U.S.-China competition, is, is not very great. Okay, thanks very much. There's a question over here, gentlemen. Here you Hi there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Um, China has a, a huge reserve of U.S. dollars. Yes. And um, I'm wondering if you have an opinion as to what extent they might use that as uh, leverage in negotiations and also the fact that oil is traded internationally in dollars. Um, it's, I've heard speculated that uh, the invasion of Iraq was accelerated by uh, Saddam's intentions to, or at least initiative to try and uh, have 
oil traded in, in currency other than dollar, and that might have a negative impact on the value of the dollar. So I wonder if you had a view on those the sort of the, the, the forex uh, component, or is there one to, to, to this issue? Uh, I've heard this uh, raised many times, and I've I've spoken with uh, pe people who might be. Uh, in a position to answer that question, the, the second part of your question, and so far as I know, uh, the, the, it, the possibility that Iran or Iraq might switch to non-dollars was not a factor in the U.S. decision to go to war. I don't think it's a strategic factor. The fact that China holds such a large supply of dollars in its currency reserves is a kind of it, it is a kind of a insurance policy that they hold against rash action by the United States but they can only use it once because once once they if they do use that uh, they will sink their own economy as well as the American economy so it, it can only be used once, and, I, and my, suspect, my suspicion is that that would be used in the case of something American intervention over Taiwan in the short term. Okay. Uh, gentleman here and a gentleman there. Yeah, please. I'll take two together this time. Yeah. One and two. Yeah, please. Uh, on a continuation of the American economy, um, could you comment on the potential for American slowdown in economy over the next couple of years due to the credit crunch, et cetera? And, and, and the impact that has on, the impact that has on, yeah. on all yeah. this and their continued yeah, pursuit of oil and et cetera. And, and, and you're taking a second question? Yeah, too? there's another question over here, yeah. Where was it? Yeah, guy? Where are you? Oh, there, yeah, please, sir. Um, I was wondering to, uh, what the people in this room should do with their influence and their personal actions to prevent these future wars uh, and to bring about peace. Yes, thank you. Um, the, first, the first question about the U.S. economy, um, there, there will be an economic slowdown in the U.S., or at least it appears to be. All the signs point in that direction. This will reduce the demand for petroleum. There's some signs of that. But as I tried to indicate, the American economy has become so hardwired in its reliance on petroleum that it's very hard for American consumers to, to give up their addiction to petroleum. They're, they're cutting back on, you know, trips to the beach, you know, frivolous trips. Uh, but if you, you know, those of you who have traveled to, to the U.S. and, as I say, got beyond the big cities... Uh, if you drive 50 miles to work and the only way to get there is to drive, you're going you're gonna to drive to work and you're going to give up eating out and going to the mall and spending money at Kmart or, or Walmart or whatever. That's what you do, and that's what's happening. And you may know that the Christmas shopping season was very disappointing for a lot of retailers, and the speculation is that people have, have to keep spending on gasoline and to, 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 maintain, to maintain their employment and getting, you know, and other vital activities. So people will keep driving. That's the sad fact, uh, even though the economy may, may suffer. Because until we reconstruct our society, which has to be the ultimate objective, I believe, 
uh, in more more concentrated housing closer to public means of transportation, uh, we're going to be stuck in this horrible mess. Uh, this gentleman asked about uh, what we could do. Now, um, I, I don't know the political cycle in, in this country. We have an election underway, and it's a remarkable opportunity to press for the thinking about new, fresh ideas. And they are coming up. And I have to say young people are taking the lead in a lot of this. And Obama's campaign has given young people, college students, a remarkable opportunity to have their voices heard in bringing new thoughts into the political process. Even if he doesn't get elected, I think he will have this dramatic effect. So I don't know what the equivalent opportunity would be here in this country. But I teach, I'm a college professor, and uh, my impression is that college-age students know a whole lot better than people of my generation about the things that I've been talking about, especially global warming. Know much better than we do about what they face in the future, and therefore are beginning to take leadership on these issues. So I say empower young people to take leadership on these issues and let them tell us what what should be done. This is getting very subversive here this evening. Uh, I had another hand somewhere. Yeah, gentleman here, please. I'll take two more. It's one down here and one upstairs. Okay, just hold on. Yeah, please, right. sir. Um, at the beginning of your lecture, you just referred to... Uh, where, yeah. where are we? Uh, Could you point? Gentleman here, yeah. yeah, sorry. Ah, thank you. Right, you just referred to the lack of investment uh, and the global corruption, at least corruption of countries, of producing countries. And theft. Yes, yeah, of course. Uh, just wanting to be sure that you also consider in your picture uh, investment made by uh, oil and gas technologies company uh, that may help the situation. I'm just thinking about, you know, just new technology for uh, ultra-deep water or deep water. And the other point uh, in relation to correction, um, do you think that this could be, that, you know, new international uh, uh, initiatives such as uh, new investment treaties or uh, the energy treaty charter or uh, uh, whatever may help to solve these problems well. That new technology could help. The, yeah, the first one is new technologies if they may help to, to, you know, to, to, to increase uh, investment and to solve the problem of the lack of investment. And the second point related to corruption, if new international uh, treaties or uh, new, such as the transparency initiatives as well, may help to, to solve the problem of corruption. I, I'm very pessimistic about that part. Uh, the, the reason for that is, is that, um, you know, it, it's, it's the low-hanging fruit problem, as they say. I don't know if you have that expression. All of the friendly, safe, uncorrupted countries' oil has already been exhausted. So you leave to last the most corrupt, politically un, you know, un, uh, unpalatable countries last, the, knowing that they're going to be problematic. And that's the place we are in today. There aren't any uncorrupted governments 
to go to or, or unproblematic governments left. They're all problematic. Um, and this is the history. This is true of any resource, but that's the history. So, yes, these initiatives will help. But uh, I, I, just, I just don't have a lot of optimism about it. Um, we could talk in specifics, but, but I, don't, I don't have a lot of optimism. Um, and, and I think the situation will become more so as the, as the value of the assets grow, the attraction for corruption and theft will also grow. So the problem probably will get worse, not better. Uh, if you're in a country where, uh, like Angola, where where most people earn one dollar a day, if they're lucky, and a handful of people can make a million dollars a day, uh, you're gonna you're gonna try to be in that group by any means necessary, which probably involves corruption or or assassination, those being the only two ways you could get into that privileged group. Uh, so so I, I think we'll see more of it, not less. As for technology, it could help, but the same problem of the low-hanging fruit, the cost of new technology, like the new field in Brazil, which is very promising, but the cost of operating in those areas is going to become so much greater. And then by the time we get to those places, global warming will kick in with a vengeance and you'll have more storms and more climate problems making, making the situation a lot worse. I don't know about offshore Brazil, but the most promising new technology area in the United States is the Gulf of Mexico. And the place in the Gulf of Mexico that they want to drill in is where the hurricanes are at their most intense and most frequent. So sure, technology could help, but the more we rely on petroleum, the more carbon dioxide we emit into the atmosphere, the warmer the planet's becoming, the more global warming, the more storms, the more insanity. So I don't think technology is going to save us. Uh, one very last question up here. Can you make it a short one, please, sir? Yeah. Yeah, just a comment. I mean, I think if we actually look at the main um, title of your talk, Oil, War and Geopolitics, for me the major source of tension in today's sort of global system is not so much the competition, let's say, as you described, between China and uh, the U.S., but it's more really the sort of dynamics of the relationships developing between uh, producer countries or producer regions on the one hand and consumers, of course, on the other. Because, uh, well, I mean, you've given us a lot of very rich information, but uh, if you look at the policies of, let's say, uh, governments in Venezuela, in Bolivia, Kazakhstan, uh, Russia, of course, um, you know, these are certainly creating a lot of uh, concern for, let's say, European Union as a bloc. Um, you know, how is Russia going to uh, keep, uh, you know, promoting its uh, natural gas export policies to the European sort of union market? You know, this is a major source of concern. Uh, Russia's potential moves towards uh, collusion, let's say, with Algeria, Iran on certain, you know, gas projects, for example, is a, is a major source of concern. Uh, also, of course, Russia's relations with Venezuela to some degree. So, I mean, I think in terms of immediate tension, the tension is really coming out of that sort of dynamic. Both the U.S., uh, which is both a consumer and a regulator, 
of the international system and China. They're both consumer states. Uh, China's increased demand is actually going to provide a massive business opportunity for many both national oil companies and international oil companies in the future. Um, and, you know, the Gulf loves this. Uh, the Saudis love the Chinese at the moment. So, I mean, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but uh, th that's how I see the source of tension in, in this uh, system. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, that I, I, I appreciate your comment, and I'd love to spend another half hour or so responding, and I'm, 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 I'm getting the signal we can't do that. Uh, but the, but the, 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 the gravitational pull of demand that I described is, is between China and the United States is going to color their relations with those supplier countries that you described. And the way that it is playing itself out is, as I say, that they are using not just diplomacy and, as you say, economic means to form relationships with all those countries that you describe, but military means as well. And many of them that you described China and the U.S. are also upping their military uh, tools of influence. And this has a self-fulfilling nature. I'll finish with one example. Uh, and Russia plays a part in this too because, as I say, Russia seeks not, not oil and gas for itself but control over the flow of energy from these areas. So Russia has announced a series of new arms sales to Iran, which is very threatening to the United States and its domination of the American lake. This summer, uh, the United States announced a $20 billion arms package of sophisticated weapons to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council states to reassert its, you know, dominance, its authority in the region. This, of course, angered and worried the supporters of Israel in the American Congress. So the Bush administration had to turn around and assure Israel that it would get billions of dollars of new weapons. This, of course, made Syria and, and other countries in the area nervous, which will generate billions of dollars of additional arms sales into the region. Just like during the Cold War period, it's touching off all this is touching off a Cold War-like regional arms race that is going to escalate and have, and have a future. We don't know where it's all going to lead. So this energy competition, even if it's played out in a diplomatic and economic realm, also has this military dimension which has its own built-in dangers. That's what worries me. But thank you for your very good perceptive question. Okay, and thank you all for your questions, Michael. Thank you. Just briefly, thank you for your presentation. Probably one of the most pessimistic I've heard in, in this room uh, for many a year. It needs a good American pessimist. Thank you. Thank you.